Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online apart from that there is a give button so if you're feeling led you can do that right online through our website you can also find us on facebook and youtube we are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that god's going to do something special in you through today's message enjoy Hi, I'm Austin. I am the youth pastor here at Duncan Pentecostal Church. Uh, You may not recognize me because I'm trying to go for the Easter play that Duncan Pentecostal Church is going to hopefully put on one day, but uh, no, (laughs) it it really is. Oh, there we go. I just got lazy and that's really all it is now. Um, Yes, I'm the youth pastor here at Duncan Pentecostal Church. I get to speak every once in a while, uh, but my main privilege is that I get to hang out with the youth of both Duncan Pentecostal Church and just youth within the valley. Uh, We have a very cool youth group that uh, doesn't just have youth from Duncan Pentecostal, but youth from all over every single church comes to our youth group together, uh, and we all get to... uh, play, have fun, sing songs, worship, and most importantly, we get to study scripture uh, and learn more about Jesus together. So you saw some of the youth up on stage this morning. They did an incredible job, I think. Um, And yeah, I'm just so proud of them, so proud of who they are, so proud of them stepping up. I never did anything like that when I was a youth, uh, and so they are actually way cooler than I could ever be. Um, Speaking of cool, How many of you guys have a family relative or that person that you know that may just be different? Anybody? If your hand's not up, it's probably because you're that person, actually. (laughs) And you're like, I don't have anybody. uh, Maybe someone that's just a little bit more counter-normal than your family might be. Uh, There we go. We have some people just pointing at themselves, wearing it proudly. Um, I am actually that one in my family. I didn't realize it until a couple of years ago. Um, But once Angel and I got married, about two and a half years ago we got married, we started to make decisions with our life for how we're going to live, the choices that we're going to make, the things that we buy, the, um, the food that we eat, the clothes that we wear, stuff like that. Uh, and I thought, oh, this is normal. Like, you start a new life, you start making these choices and start living the life that you want to live. And it was good for us, I think, until my family started to recognize uh, this change that we started making in our life. Uh, And as we were talking about the things we do, like we grow our own veggies, we wear linen clothes and sleep on linen sheets, we buy organic food and all those kind of things. All of a sudden, we got branded as the hippies of the family. (laughs) And we are the weird, organic, crunchy ones in my family, because that is something that never happened uh, growing up. We didn't really eat that we ate craft dinner all the time, and now Angel looks at craft dinner. And she's like, "Why would you like eat all those PFAs, Austin?" I'm like, "What's a PFA?" <laughs> and so we became the counter normal in my family, uh, and uh, it. Um, 
It's something that my family constantly points out, something that my family likes to remind us of and point us out that we are different than them uh, and call us crazy, as some might say. Uh, And that's kind of what we're going to be looking at is the way that Jesus was viewed uh, by the world, even by his own family, as crazy Jesus. That's what I titled my message this morning, and it's how to live like crazy Jesus. So if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks or months, I don't know, weeks, I think, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark together as a church. We like to go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and Peter did half of chapter three, and so I get to finish off chapter three. And so if you would like to turn to uh, Mark chapter three, we're going to be starting in verse 20 together this morning. But before we get into that, I... I'm just going to quickly pray. Um, I always love starting with prayer, and I don't get to speak up here as often as I used to, and every single time I come up, I get nervous again. So I'm just going to quickly pray uh, for the service for Scripture, Um, and just for us. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to study your word, uh, that it's such a gift given to us uh, that is so alive, so real, so applicable to who, or to the way we live, to what we do, to every single part of our lives today. Lord, thank you for your word that guides us, that teaches us, that challenges us, that encourages us. And today, as we study, as we see the way that you lived uh, completely against what was normal, God, I thank you for the example that you set, and may it just be a challenge and encouragement to us today. I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, I'm reading from the NLT this morning. I know that a lot of the Bibles in the seatbacks in front of you, or maybe you guys read from ESV or other translations, but the NLT, I just love the way that it was put. Uh, And so that's what I'm going to be reading from this morning, uh, starting in verse 20. One time, Jesus entered a house, and the crowds began to gather again. Soon, he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. So this is a bit of a continuation from the verses in front Peter went through, and we saw how uh, the life that Jesus was living and the way that he was living, if you look in chapter 3, verse 7, it says that great crowds gathered and followed Jesus. And so we see that the way that Jesus was living, great crowds would, would follow him wherever he went. And so it became so uh, big, so it took up so much of his time that it says that it, he didn't even get opportunities to eat. This idea of downtime or TLC or just getting away from the crowd is not something that Jesus would necessarily prioritize uh, at the top because he knew that he was called to be with people, to teach people a different way of living, to show people the love that God had for them. And so he actually made it a priority to focus on the crowds to focus on those who would be following him, to be able to teach them. And we see that this priority led to the point where he couldn't even find time to eat. The way that he lived and the life that he lived drew people towards him and it caused people to speak and share and say different things about him. And we're going to find out that they said both good things and they said both bad things. In verse 21, when his family heard what was happening... They tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. Some of your translations might say he's beside himself, or or some translations actually just say he is crazy. (laughs) 
And so why would family say something like that? Why would his family come in, see this large crowd, and claim that Jesus is out of his mind or that he is crazy for what he's doing? And when we look at it, it actually kind of makes sense that they would call him crazy. He's someone who left his home and gave up his family's business in order to pursue his calling. He's someone who defied religious leaders and uh, did not always follow the religious rules. He began hanging out with a strange crowd, and so fishermen and uh, reformed tax collectors and prostitutes and the sick and those people who maybe aren't good to hang out with. He gave up security and safety and uh, societal norms. He didn't always have financial security, maybe, like what would be normal. Uh, He didn't have necessarily a steady job. He didn't have a comfortable house. He didn't live a risk-free life. And all these things, maybe they came and they said he's out of his mind because it seems as if he's living in a crazy way. And it could be all with good intention. They may just be concerned for the way that Jesus lives and they could be trying to take him from this because they're recognizing that he's not actually able to eat. Maybe this is taking a toll on his mental well-being and so maybe they're coming with good intention. But though Jesus may respect good intention in this, he was really focusing on what God's intention was. He was more concerned about doing the Father's will than doing his family's will. As I was studying uh, this passage and as I was studying the scripture, it got me asking the question of whose will am I necessarily following? Do I always follow God's will or am I more concerned with the will of others around me? Do I not follow God's will because I'm concerned others might think I'm crazy or others might think differently of me? How often do I do something because it's good where I should be asking the question if God says that it's good? I think when Jesus lived his life, he never really asked the question, what will others think of me? But he lived his life in such a way that he says, I want others to think of what I'm doing. I love how H.G. Wells puts it. And he says, for most people, the voice of their neighbors is actually louder than the voice of God. And I, read, I heard that, and I heard that quote, and I was so challenged, and I was like, so hurt, almost, because I find that that can actually be a reality even for me. Where I'm at work, I work construction full time, and there's many opportunities where I could bring up scripture, many opportunities where I can be uh, an example or act out as culturally different than what my coworkers would say. Uh, And sometimes I don't say something because I'm more concerned with what they might think of me, with what they might say about me. And so in that moment, the voice of my coworkers is actually louder than the voice of God. I remember hearing this story a couple of years ago, and it was about this person who was out on a missions trip. 
they went to, I forget which country it was, but they went and uh, they were doing uh, different missions opportunities, helping out with churches, teaching English classes uh, in a missions field elsewhere. And as they were walking through the streets, they were praying for the city. As they were praying for the city, all of a sudden, one of them felt uh, the strangest urge to go and do a handstand against a pop machine. And you think about that, and you're like, what is going on? And that's exactly what they thought about. They're like, whoa, that must have been the weird tacos that we had last night. But they, so they, but they could not get this feeling out of their mind and out of their heart. And so they walked around, and then they told those that they were with, they're like, I have this weird feeling that I need to do something really strange, and I don't know what to do about it. They're like, well, let's just walk around the block, and then if we go back to that spot and you have that feeling, we'll just pray about it a little bit more. So they walked around the block, and as soon as they got back to that spot, they saw the pop stand or the pop machine, and the person in their heart knew, I need to go do a handstand against that pop machine. They're like, oh, this is the weirdest thing ever, because at this time, there was a lineup of people waiting to get into a movie. And they're like, there's so many people staring at me. This is going to be the strangest thing ever. Why am I doing something like this? And so they paused, they thought about it, and eventually they got to the point where they're like, okay, I cannot fight this feeling. I cannot fight this idea that I have in my mind, so I'm just going to go and do it. So they walked into the pot machine and simply just did a handstand against it, got down, and started walking away. And they're like, that was so strange, so weird. I don't know why I did that. But then as they were walking away, someone ran out of the line and tapped them on the shoulder, and they said, why did you just do that? <laughs> And he's like, oh, goodness, this is, of course, weird. And they're like, well, I'm a Christian. I felt it in my heart that I was called to do something like that. And I know it sounds really weird, but I thought that I would just step out and do it. And they're like, well, actually, that's crazy that you said that because someone was telling me about Jesus last night. And I said, God, if you are real, make someone do a handstand against that pop machine because it's so out of this world, so crazy that no one would ever do that. And so they're really challenging God in this moment for like, the craziest thing ever. But then this person went and did that. And so they had this awesome opportunity to then talk about the power of God and his love for this person. And they led him to the Lord in that spot right there. And so I was like, wow, that is amazing. But they were called by God's voice to do something that seemed absolutely crazy, something that was completely against what was culturally normal, completely against what others would say is sane, but it led to the glory of God no matter what. And they listened in that moment to the voice of God rather than the voice of others around them. And I asked myself the question as I was going through that, whose voice am I listening to daily? Do I listen to God's voice? Do I listen to my neighbor's voice? Do I listen to my own voice? Do I listen to my family's voice? Who am I more concerned with pleasing on a daily basis? And Jesus, as we see in this passage, wasn't concerned about what his family was thinking, wasn't concerned about what others were thinking, but he knew what he had to do was what God called him to do first and foremost. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul talks about this idea that when we start to live by the Spirit, the natural person or the, the world will not understand it. I like the way that the message actually puts this verse. Uh, it writes, the unspiritual self, 
just as it is by nature, can't receive the gifts of God's Spirit. There is no capacity for them, for they seem like so much silliness. Spirit can be known only by God's Spirit, or Spirit can be known only by Spirit, God's Spirit, and our Spirit in open communion. Spiritually alive, we have access to everything God's Spirit is doing and can't be judged by unspiritual critics. I really like the way that Eugene puts that. And that idea that when we're spiritually alive, when we're sitting in God's presence, sitting in his spirit, like what Jesus was doing daily, we have access to everything God's spirit is doing. Romans 12.2 also talks about this idea. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve that God's will is his good, or what God's will is, his good and his perfect will. When you live in this life being transformed by God's spirit, being transformed by what he wants you to do, rather than maybe what the world is pointing you to do, you begin to know what God's will is for your life. The next thing that we see Jesus doing and how he lived as crazy Jesus is that he lived by the strength of God's spirit. Verse 22 says, but teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem says, or said, he's possessed by Satan. Some of your translations might say Beelzebub, the prince of demons. That's where he gets his power to cast out demons. Based off of commentaries, it wasn't uncommon for there to be uh, Jewish exorcists. It was actually a common practice for it to happen in that day. The uncommon thing that Jesus had was his success at being able to exercise demons. And so these uh, commentators say that these are probably Pharisees or religious leaders that were coming down to kind of uh, examine who is this wandering preacher that everybody is talking about. And when they came down, they uh, were then going to kind of critique and come up with the idea for how he's so successful, who he is, where he gets his authority from, and all of that. But because uh, um, when they came down and they saw the success that Jesus had, they didn't really come up with a way to explain it, but they instead blinded themselves. They had the opportunity right now to say, wow, God's power is so good. God's power is able to cast out demons and they have nothing to say about it, but instead they were blinded and their hearts were hardened so that they couldn't actually see God's work. They couldn't distinguish what God was doing. Unfortunately, in this moment, they were so blind from God's incarnate love that they had to claim that it was the incarnate power of Satan instead. To understand this passage, what they're kind of saying is that Jesus is able to cast out little demons by the power of bigger demons, is what they're really saying. And so unfortunately, they cannot see what is actually happening in this moment, whether it was uh, because of jealousy or whether it was because of um, just fear maybe for who this could be or someone uh, that they think is trying to undermine them. What they tried to do instead is actually discredit Jesus's ministry. But Jesus has a response for them in verse 23. He says, Jesus called them over and he responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan? He asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. 
Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. If Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. So after they make this claim against Jesus and against who he is and against his ministry, he calls them over and he actually speaks more common sense than these religious leaders did. They had no logical consistency in what they were saying. Jesus says, um, if you understand math, I actually love math because math makes sense. And how many of us love division? Okay. Oh, there's some hands. Wow. I'm not alone in this. I love division because it makes sense. And what happens when you divide something by itself? It becomes one, but really it cancels itself out, right? So if you have like two divided by two, the twos cancel each other out, it becomes one. If you have kingdom divided by kingdom, the equals cancel each other out and you have nothing. If you have family divided by family, cancels each out cancels each other out, and you have nothing. So Jesus is really sharing this common sense that anybody in this, um, in this crowd would be able to understand. And so he shares about this idea of kingdoms divided against themselves, and people would totally understand the kingdoms once they start to feud and once they start to fight. We saw that actually after Alexander the Great died suddenly, all of his, or his kingdom was divided amongst his four generals. They, just, they started fighting and feuding, and they divided themselves, and then the whole kingdom of, I think it was the, is it Greek? I, I forget what it is, the Macedonian Empire, that's what it was, uh, divided and split up completely. This kingdom divided against itself did not stand. We all know that when families constantly fight, they will fall apart. And Jesus says, Satan on top, divided by Satan, cancels itself out, cannot stand, will fall, will fall apart. And he illustrates this idea further when he talks about the idea that when a strong man in his house, and he's using this example as Satan, Satan has power, Jesus recognizes that power, Satan is a strong man. The only way for a strong man to be subdued is if someone who is more powerful or who is more strong than this man is able to come in and subdue him. And he says in this moment that God has come in, overpowered Satan, overpowered this strong man, and his, his forces are breached and God will receive victory from this. And so he gives this amazing promise in this moment. God will have the victory. And as Jesus talks about this idea of those divided against themselves, I can't help but think about the church in nowadays. How when you have a church divided by a church and you see these divisions, those churches will fall apart. And in a sense, how Jesus is talking about how we need to live by God's spirit, how we need to live by his authority and by his power and by the strength of his spirit, then when we do that, we do not see this kind of division. Because Satan knows all too well that to divide is actually to conquer. And so as a church, and I'm not just talking about Duncan Pentecostal Church, but the capital C Church it is our job to 
not look to divide or to polarize or to uh, categorize or anything like that, but I find that uh, as we read through this and see the way that Jesus lived, he looked to squash quarrels. He looked to strive for peace. He looked to love one another and carry each other's burdens, not be the cause of each other's burdens. I love how one pastor put it. He, he said, we are called not to dig ditches, but to build bridges. And that idea that we should not be trying to separate or look to divide or look to uh, cause this polarizing in our culture, in our, in our churches nowadays, but to rather build relationships. To stand out and be seen as crazy in our world today, I think that it would look like a people that strive for peace, a people that strive for healthy relationships, a people that strived uh, to be um, the, the menders and the, the peacemakers as Jesus has called us. If the world looked at the church and instead of seeing something divided, what would the world look like if the church looked like a united force of love instead. I love that William Barclay writes that one thing that Jesus recognized was the power of evil versus the power of God. But he doesn't sit around, he doesn't speculate about where did the evil come from or what, uh, is, brought about, or what is it that brought about this evil, what kind of evil could it be? But his thoughts and his ministry went to practically fight against evil. And I think that one way that we see Jesus doing that is fighting against, practically fighting against division, practically fighting against what the enemy is constantly trying to do. He continues in, chapter, or in verse 28. He says, I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anybody who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences, he told them this because they were saying that he is possessed by an evil spirit. Here's one of the things that is the greatest promises, but also one of the scariest warnings, I think. The promise is that all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. Jesus gave that promise right there. He says, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. It's like in Romans 8, verse 1, where there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, or Acts 13, 39, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And this idea of greatest promise is no matter what, no matter what kind of life you've lived, no matter what kind of sin you've done, no matter what kind of blasphemy you've done, you have forgiveness in Jesus that he came and said, no matter who you have been, I wash that clean and you are a new creation in me. And this amazing promise of what he had done for us. But at the same time, this amazing promise is followed by a terrifying warning. What people have called the unforgivable sin, which is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I didn't entirely know how to explain blaspheme, and so I looked at the definition for it because that's what you always do. And to blaspheme is great disrespect shown to God or to something holy. And so to take the Holy Spirit and to show great disrespect to who the Holy Spirit is or to who God's Spirit is. 
And it's something that, as I was studying this, I actually wrestled with. Because Jesus first says, all sin and blaspheme is forgivable. But then he says, this is the one exception to it. And I was like, wait a second, isn't that an inconsistency in it? But as I studied it more, it began to make a lot more sense. Because to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit and show disrespect, it actually causes for someone to sear their conscience. It causes for someone to harden their heart. It's one big step towards eternal suffering because as you sear your conscience and as you sear your own spirit, it's to bring yourself to the point where you no longer recognize the spirit of God at work where they were claiming that the spirit that Jesus is using is actually an evil spirit. And so because it's an evil spirit, that means that God actually can't forgive and wash clean and empower his people by his spirit. And so because of that, there's no such thing as sin that can be forgiven because of that. And it becomes all of a sudden this blaspheme spiral where you continuously go down and go down. And eventually you think there's no way I can be forgiven because God is not able to do that. And so that's where he talks about it's this idea of an eternal sin in the sense that um, it's like if you're working out. As soon as you stop working out, you start to realize that you have digressed later. You try to go back to the gym and you're like, oh, I used to be able to lift this much weight. Now I can only lift this much weight. You've brought yourself to the point where you've stopped working out and so you actually cannot work out the same you can. Some commentators... um, described as it's like you decide that you'll never read again, and so you just forget how to read. Or you'll never walk again, or you'll forever lay in your bed, and so you forget how to walk. You choose not to follow God's spirit to reveal himself, and so you do not know how to recognize the spirit at work in the world around you. And that's where Jesus is talking about this idea that you are the reason that it becomes an unforgivable sin. All sin is forgivable by God, except for this because you brought yourself to the point where you don't see yourself as being able to be forgiven by God. There was this, this idea of blaspheming against God. There was this church a couple of months or years ago uh, in Massachusetts, and I saw this on social media one day as I was scrolling through it, and it was a church that got struck by lightning. The steeple, or the, yeah, the steeple got struck in the whole church. At over, it's over 280 years old or something like that. It's been there forever. Got struck by lightning suddenly uh, during a storm. And as this video of the steeple collapsing into the church, it got split to um, what the pastor was saying previously on that Sunday. He got burnt down on Friday. What he was saying on that Sunday And as he was talking about it, he was answering this question of all these inconsistencies within the Bible. And he's like, I believe there's inconsistency within the Bible because it was written by multiple different authors over thousands of years. And then he goes on to say, and I don't believe that it is divinely inspired by God. And so he says right there on Sunday morning, the Bible is not inspired by God. He says, I think it's people's interpretation of trying to understand a God that we don't know. I was like, whoa, what is going on? And then he goes on to pray afterwards, and he goes on to pray as 
holy mother God, because you have no gender and cannot be defined by gender. And he goes on to all these different things. And so in this moment, he began to actually blaspheme who God is. As God has revealed himself in scripture, as like a father figure to us, as divine and holy, and as 1 Timothy talks about the idea that all scripture is God-breathed, given to us and divinely inspired by God, he actually went completely against what was being said and blasphemed against the Holy Spirit's work and against God's character. And I don't know if the lightning struck as God's judgment necessarily, but I think that God also was maybe giving a warning at those who are in authority to teach and preach and, and, and lead others, like, be careful what you're saying. Be careful the way that you're leading people. And I, I am so thankful for Peter in the way that he genuinely respects God's word and how we go through verse by verse and how we don't do it or and how we exegetically pull out what this means to us today that every single part of scripture is, de- is given to us by God. I so, am so thankful for that. And the final way that we see that Jesus lived as crazy Jesus is that he actually lived in a God-honoring community. Verse 31 says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and they sent word for him to come out and talk with, him, with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. But then Jesus replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those who were around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus isn't doing this to necessarily disrespect his family to disrespect his mother, to disrespect the uh, care that they might be having for him in this moment. But I believe he's doing this to show the way that Christians should be living in community today. To show that as Christians, uh, as the church, as those who are pursuing Jesus together, as those who want to be disciples of Jesus, we should be like a family. We should be a close-knit group of people. If you think about family, you're able to be completely authentic before your family, You're able to be there through good times and through terrible times. You're able to be there through laughing and through crying. You're able to be there and share each other's burdens to love one another. And I believe that Jesus is showing us that a way to live completely countercultural is to be in this kind of way, as a family with others around you. To be in a community together that isn't just tight-knit and isn't just having the greatest time ever, but together pursue God's will. It says in verse 35, anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And I think that that's something that we constantly wrestle with, is what is God's will? 
What is his will for me? What is his will? And how do we pursue that together? And I think as we study scripture, there's two wills that we start to see. The general will for every single person who is a follower of Jesus to love God, to love others, and make disciples. The general will of God for every single person. And then the specific will that God calls you to. Maybe it's to go and care for specific groups of people. Maybe it's to go and travel and speak about his name. Maybe it's to stand up on a stage and teach from the Bible. Maybe it's to just stand up and lead worship and lead people into that place of worshiping God. But it involves spending genuine time with him and seeking what he wants for your life. Like it said in Romans 12, to live transformed and you will understand his will. I love that Jesus describes church as family. But it got me thinking again about how do people describe churches today? If the world looks at a church, do they see them as just another thing in culture that's going the same direction? Do they see them just more as an organization or as an institution or maybe even just as a religious service? Do they see them as a group of people changing the world in a completely countercultural way. Jesus set the example for how he wants his church to live, to be like a family that works together to do the will of God. And I know I started this sermon with the, the title of Crazy Jesus, and before you say that I'm blaspheming Jesus, <laughs> I did it more so as a clickbait for you. But I think that really what the title should be is Countercultural Jesus. In the way that he set the example to live counterculturally for us to live counterculturally. In the way that he set the example to go against the flow of the world in order to follow the flow of the Father. And as I looked into it, I, I wrote down a couple ideas, because I like making things practical, for how to stand out in a cultural world today, or how to be countercultural in our world today. Number one, be salt and be light. Coming from Matthew 5, you are the salt and light of the world. Number two, do good and help when you can, even when it's not easy. Jesus gave the example of love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Number three, be generous. He gives the example of if someone asks you to walk 500 kilometers with them or 500 meters with them, walk another 500 meters with them. If someone asks for your cloak, give them your shirt also. Fourth one, practice what true love actually is. In 1 Corinthians, it talks about that love is patient, love is kind, does not envy. So practicing what true love actually is. Number five, to teach others, or as Jesus said, to go and make disciples of all nations. Number six, to hear and to do God's word. He gives an example of a man who built it, who heard God's word, is like, uh, heard God's word and didn't do it, it's like a man who built his house on sand. And a man who heard God's word and obeyed and did it is like a man who built his house upon the rock. And number seven, really enjoy life. 
where Jesus says that the enemy has come to kill and steal and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and life to the full. I think Jesus meant for his disciples to show what true joy actually is. So people began to call Jesus out and talk about him because he was noticeably different. He went against cultural norms and he went against what was uh, the normal of the day and people were drawn to that. And I want to ask the question of what is it that people notice about you? Do they see you as someone that just kind of goes with the flow of culture or is there something about you that people are noticing is different? Is there something about you that they see in you that is noticeably Jesus in you? The crowd followed Jesus because he was countercultural. And how are people responding to you? We don't have to have a crowd of thousands following us, but I think a big part of it is just start with one. Start with one person who may notice something different about you and begin to show them a different life. Show them that there's more to life. Show them that there is Jesus in life. I'm going to invite the band up. I think that they have a song to close off. But I want us to think about that question of, Lord, how am I seen by the world around me? How am I showing Jesus to those closest to me? I think that once we start to live in that way, live in such a way that the world sees something different, that the world sees Jesus within us, in the same way that Jesus came and changed his culture, I believe that the church today will begin to change culture in a way that we could never even imagine. And so, Father, as we close off and as we worship you, as we set our eyes on you, the living God who is moving, who is working, whose spirit is in us today, may we take opportunities and take steps to uh, stand out against what is culturally normal. May we go against the grain of, of what others say is, is right, of what the world says is right, but uh, live by the power of your spirit, God. And Father, I pray just for unity amongst churches, unity amongst your people, unity amongst your, your church uh, worldwide, God. May you be glorified in all that we do. May you be glorified in all that is seen in us. Seeking you and seeking your voice. May we hear your voice speaking to us. Because you, you want to speak right now. Pray this in your name. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.